Well, hello, my name is Amanda Kasseri. My pronouns are she, her. Today is October 21st, 2021. And I'm speaking with Julia Ferrioli and with Joe Beta, um, who Julia, I know from our project, theopensourcestories.org. And then Joe, this is my first time meeting him, in, uh, I guess, in person online. Um, we are recording this conversation for open source stories, and I'm currently in a, it looks like a cave, but I promise it's an office in New England that just needs better lighting. Um, and my first memory of a computer, so Joe, we always do like a warm-up question. And so sure. my first memory of a computer is when my uncle, who worked for IBM in the early 1980s, uh, gave everybody in the family a PC for, our, for our Christmas, and we got an IBM PC Junior in our living room. I had a PC uh, Junior also back in the day. There you go. Excellent. Playing King's <laughs> Quest on that, I remember. Oh my yes. gosh, King's Quest. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yep. Julie, would you like to go next? Sure. My name is Julie Ferrioli. Um, I, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm recording this from my office. It's the end of my day, and that's lovely. This is a great way to wrap it up. Um, my first memory of a computer was, I think, like, playing MS-DOS games and thinking they were okay, but you know it was really cool? The screensaver. <laughs> and I've loved fractals ever since. <laughs> so. You're named after one or vice versa, right? <laughs> I think I'm going to adopt that as my origin story. Yes. <laughs> Joe, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Joe Bita. Uh, let's see, today is October 21st, uh, 2021. Uh, you know, speaking with uh, Amanda and Julia here. Uh, I've known Amanda for a long time. We worked at Google together. And uh, I mean, I've known Julia for a long time. And then Amanda, it's nice meeting you today. Um, uh let's see so i am you know in my office here in seattle um i got a green screen behind me because my office is kind of a closet and so you see it's like storage racks and coat racks and stuff like that when i bring the green screen up and uh, my first memory of a computer is i don't know to be honest because my father was a uh was a computer programmer he worked on ibm mainframes back in the day when i was growing up and uh, which is weird because, you know, my my youngest is a programmer and he's, you know, she's a third generation computer programmer, which is weird to think about. But I remember, I think the impact of the computers more than anything, my dad would bring home like punch cards and we'd use those as uh, uh, as, you know, shopping lists and uh, and print out on like chain printers, which are these like crazy printer technology, like banners that said Merry Christmas or whatever. Um, but I remember he we used to work nights because that was when the cheap computer time was and he would sleep during the day. And I remember climbing on top of him as a little kid and like keeping him awake when he was probably exhausted after spending a night at the data center. So that's my my early exposure to computers was was, you know, exhausted father. <laughs> I think that's something that uh, has has kind of passed out of some recent memory about like cheap computer time. Well, I mean, we have spot instances in the cloud, right? That's true. <laughs> That's true. What's old is new. Do you think, well, I mean, do you think 
is really the difference there then? I'm sorry, you broke up for a second. Can you repeat it? Do you do you think scheduling is really the difference then? Because I know for um, like friends who use high performance computing centers, they still have to schedule for availability and for computing time. And you know the the fascinating thing is that it's one of scarcity, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. like there's only so many computers and it can only be used once. I think so much of the computing sort of environment is really post scarcity to some degree, right? Like computers are if not cheap, plentiful, right? But there's still certain things like, you know, hey, lots of computers in a data center, high performance computing. Um, you know, I just rewatched the other day, Contact, the movie. And there's a whole, like the big part of it is that like getting, you know, telescope time when you can and the, the cost of that. And so it's interesting to think about like, that's another place where it's a, you know, that infrastructure is a scarce resource and only, only one person can be using it at a time. So yeah, I think that's always gonna be the case to some degree. Anyway, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your background and how you got into open source. Fortunately, um, so I don't know, like, so the weird thing is that, you know, um, I use open source because I think everybody in our industry uses open source, whether they know it or, or not. But, you know, I hadn't done a lot of actually contributing to open source. I think most of my career has been commercial uh, software um, working within large companies. So I started at Microsoft working on Internet Explorer. Um, some of my early sort of realizations there was, you know, Microsoft at one point recognized that uh, security was important. <laughs> and uh, and there was this whole fire drill where everybody took, you know, a couple of months off to, to go and code review a whole bunch of stuff looking mm -hmm. for common security issues. And the thing I zeroed in on was like the image decoders. And so we were using things like libpng at the time and in a very old version of it and um, and looking at it through the security lens. And so that was one of those like, you know, places where I really started looking deep in terms of like a dependency, you know, an open source dependency. Mm -hmm. um, you know, previous to that, I'd like, you know, installed, you know, Linux in college and that type of thing. So. Um, but I think the first time I really got involved in a community, honestly, was probably Kubernetes um, and starting that project out. And so there was a lot of sort of learning as we go. Um, but I would say, you know, um, you know, I gave this interview the other day and like one of the things I said there that they, they pulled out was software is a team sport. Right. And, and I think, you know, whether you're working in a big company or whether you're working in open source, I think a lot of the skills in the environment is transferable of like, you know, you can tell people what to do, but it's so much more effective if you can work together, find shared goals and motivate people to, to work together. And I think that's, you know, a lot of times the heart of what open source is. And so um, I think that made it a relatively easy transition for me as I started contributing and as we got Kubernetes up and off the ground. Mm hmm. That small project that, you know, hasn't just had its own conference or anything. So. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, but the other thing is, is that like I, you know, I was at Microsoft, you know, you know, when I, you know, I did a couple of internships there mm -hmm. and I was there for seven or eight years, you know, and I was there when like there was the panic around like Linux is this thing that's going to kill Microsoft. And so, you know, from the outside, I think we've all watched sort of Linux sort of take its primacy in terms of where it exists in the industry, the impact that it's had. 
And so, you know, there's definitely at least, you know, from the outside, you see these patterns and you're like, oh, here's how big these things can get, you know? And so mm -hmm. that was definitely, you know, some of the stuff we were thinking about when Kubernetes was getting going is that, you know, hey, if this thing is successful, you know, the sky's the limit. But um, but yeah, there was a lot of making it up as we go it went along, too. <laughs> so, Joe, you mentioned that you see software engineering as or creating software as a team sport. How do you think that changes or doesn't change when we talk about open source software? Do you think there's a material difference? I think in the ideal world, the answer is no. But the reality of our industry is that there are all sorts of gates and gatekeeping that actually exist that I think open source, you know, there's still gates and open source and there's still, you know, barriers, but those barriers are different and, you know, probably, you know, shorter than they than they are, I think, in the commercial world. I think, you know, when I, you know, joined Microsoft back in the day, I mean, I joined a, around 97, you know, this was the heyday of like the, you know, the Microsoft whiteboard hazing questions, right? Same thing when I was at Google for a long time. And, you know, in my view around sort of what it takes to interview and what makes a successful software engineer has has evolved and changed over that time. I, you know, I would not interview people today the way that I did back then. Um, and what I like about open source is that, you know, people can show up and, you know, you know, regardless of where they are, ideally who they are, you know, there's opportunities for them to have an impact and, and, you know, um, and, you know, to really sort of sidestep a lot of the gatekeeping that can happen. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that there's a that it can cast a wider net. And I think that that's fundamentally super interesting. Um, the other thing that I think is different is that in commercial software, you know, generally you have the business is the thing that rules all, right? You know, you're writing software so that you can drive a business, whether it's, you know, you're selling the software itself or selling a service or using the software to like, I don't know, judge risk for insurance or what have you. The, the, the software is written to service the business where, and so then you end up with a role like a product manager that decides which software you should write. In open source, you know, there there's a, you know, the, those who show up and put in the work, those are the ones that, you know, build the influence and can direct the project and decide where things go. And so there's a much more of a, um, of a, a you know, a, a, those that show up are the ones that actually get to decide what happens versus those that, you know, uh, may deem themselves in charge, right? And so there's a definitely a different dynamic there around that. I'm curious, Joe, from the way that you're describing um, a few different levels within open source, is there a difference to how you describe open source to people who are unfamiliar with it? Is there a difference between how it exists versus how you want it to be? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that there are different types of open source projects. And I think this is one of the, the complexities that folks who haven't been in this world can get confused by. There are, you know, throw it over the wall open source where the source is open. Technically people can do it, but there's no contributing community around it. Uh, and, 
And then there's sort of single vendor open source where, you know, maybe there's a, you know, they'll accept contributions from outside folks, but it's very clear that a single company is actually driving the bus, setting the roadmap, making the, the important decisions around it. And then there's, I, I would say, sort of like, you know, uh, um, open source that is really community driven. And I think there's different levels there. And I think a lot of this comes down to governance. Um, which ends up being a complex topic with certain weird parallels to sort of real world governance. Um, you know, you have a bunch of people, you have to decide what are the ground rules? How can you make uh, an environment that everybody is, is happy and okay with when at the end of the day, everybody can sort of vote with their feet, uh, you know, in terms of where they want to spend their time and the, their effort. And so I think there's definitely different flavors of this, depending on the different types of models that you're talking about here. I think oftentimes when people say open source, they they generally mean, and they lean towards the the more open governance model where it's really community driven. Um, but I think what we've seen over the past, you know, several years is 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 definitely more of these hybrid models, more, you know, corporate open source to some degree, where where there's really a company that's driving the bus. But fundamentally, if I were to describe open source to somebody, what I would say is that um, when we look at software. And where's the value? Oftentimes we think the value is in the code, but the reality is that the value is in so much more than the code. And so a big part of open source is extracting the code, finding positive sum win-win situations between a whole bunch of folks um, where they're contributing. And then the value that they both receive from that and that they can then add to be able to create you know, commercial motions, those things happen outside of and on top of the code. And sometimes it's support and guidance and consulting. Oftentimes, you know, open source will have a gazillion knobs. Knowing how to configure and adjust those knobs is a skill in and of itself. That skill is marketable. Um, being able to extend the open source in ways that actually meet somebody's needs, that's another marketable thing. So like that idea of, you know, the, the value of these projects goes beyond the source code and separating those things out. I think that's at the heart of open source. And uh, it's not obvious to folks who are not in the industry and really, you know, understanding like, yeah, look, you can have the source code to Windows, but that doesn't mean that you're Microsoft, right? And there's clearly a gap there between those things. Is there anyone in particular who, like speaking of more than source code, is there anybody in particular in open source who might not be immediately apparent, but has been very influential for you and your experience as a part of the larger community? I mean, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I think, you know, one of the fascinating things for me about open source is that it's so wide. There are so many people doing so much good work and, you know, and I could name names, but like those names are, and at the end of the day, end up being hyper local. I don't, you know, and, and this is the distributed nature of it. There is nobody in charge of open source. And those who try to appoint themselves in charge of open source almost inevitably uh, suffer a sort of an allergic reaction from other people. So that that's sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of the anarchy at the center of it, it ends up being a, a sort of a controlling thing where, where, you know, I don't, you know, I think there are people who have ideas, but like a lot of times you'll see these things independently arise from different directions. Um, you know, for me, I think, you know, the the one name that I, I love working with, and I think he embodies a lot of the the sort of the community aspect of open source would be would be Tim Hawken on, on Kubernetes. Um, I think, you know, 
I, I can say that Kubernetes was the first open source project that I was, you know, really involved in, in terms of pushing, but, you know, Tim had been involved in open source for a long time. And so he definitely, as, as the project was growing, he really helped set the tone for folks. And I think, you know, we all learned a lot from him as, as we went through that journey. Is there a moment in, in time where you feel like the open source landscape shifted? I think, you know, one of the interesting things about open source is the openness of it. And because of the openness, there are very few surprises, right? I think, you know, in the industry, we all want to like get up on stage and make the big Steve Jobs-like announcement where everybody goes, ooh and ah, that's amazing. But when you're doing all the development in the open, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no, there's very few opportunities for you to surprise people. And, you know, uh, and so you don't get the drama of those reveals, but that doesn't mean that there are sort of movements and changes that sneak up on you. And and like you know, and I think sometimes these are social, sometimes they're 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 technical, sometimes they're business oriented. Um, from the 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 sort of the technical point of view, and you know, I think there was the. Um, the whole left pad incident in the Node.js community, I think, was a bit of a wake-up call to folks. And for for folks who are listening who aren't aware of this, um, Node.js has a reputation for having a boatload of very small libraries that you pull in, all of these things being open and published. And there was this one library that had a single function for essentially adding padding to the left side of a string. And it was included by like all these other libraries. And the author of that thing just decided to unpublish it at some point and essentially broke the 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 Node.js community. And um, and I think this this opened everybody's eyes to the fact that, you know, the 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 interdependency of these projects is incredibly fragile and distributed. And so, you know, the, the the larger conversation that I think we're all having now, you know, you'll hear the words things like supply chain. I think a lot of that started with, holy crap, like, you know, this one thing ends up being a linchpin that so much depends upon. And I think there's a ton of examples that everybody's known about for a long time. I think the security issues in OpenSSL are another example of like, you know, how many people are maintaining this thing that is like a load bearing part of the technology landscape. Um, that trend had been building for a while. And I think it's, it's, you know, the, 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 the wave is cresting now in a point where people are recognizing it. The other aspect of this would be, you know, the, the rise of cloud and monetization models around open source. And this is really more business related. Um, the, uh, we're seeing that, that, you know, Again, the value in open source is not always in the code, which means that people who create value on top of it, you can be the one who actually uh, 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 creates a ton of value by writing code, but somebody else may monetize that and actually turn that into to revenue and turn that into money. And there are startups who go and you know take investment and go off and start building open source under the assumption that they're going to have a way to monetize only to find that, you know, the best laid plans and all that, like they they have plans for how they're going to monetize, but it doesn't end up working out. Um, and the 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 most, you know, I think you look at like 
who was the first to do it? I'm trying to remember. So you find people will actually move away from truly open source licenses, according to some definitions of open source, to try and protect certain ways to monetize. And so I think we're still in the middle of a conversation in terms of what is open source? What are the methods for monetization? And I'm trying to think like, you know, the the most recent example of this, you know, that I think had a lot of impact was Elasticsearch ended up, you know, um, relicensing. I think Mongo did also. Yes. Um, and those things, I think, ended up being a wake-up call that, like, hey, we're, we're, you know, not all of this stuff is sort of settled. We're, we're still exploring the space of what it means to be open, what exactly is open, and how do we create relationships between open source and businesses. Um, and this is an evolution from, like, you know, the old days when open source very much had this sort of, uh, uh, you know, much more of that sort of, you know, anarchist bent to it of, like, hey, we're all in this together you know, everything wants to be free, you know, that that type of, you know, with the, you know, the free as in, um, you know, free as in speech type of, of point of view, right. Um, and so, you know, I think we're just seeing that evolution. But I think that the point that crystallized it was the relicensing of something like Mongo, that mm -hmm. really is like, oh, wow, okay, things are changing here. There's, there's an interesting kind of dichotomy here between the the ideals of open source and the concept of ownership or control even over open source code, never mind projects, right? Um, I'm wondering, have you seen this? How have you seen this shift? How have you seen this manifest? I think, you know, a lot of this comes back to governance here. So, you know, there's the code, but then I think we're seeing an evolution in terms of the usability of open source. And I'll give you an example is that like, you take a look at like the, 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 the example that I brought up earlier around sort of the PNG decoder that was in Internet Explorer. So there was libpng, it's been around forever and it's a library. Um, you know, grabbing this thing and building it is not necessarily an easy thing. It's not packaged for easy consumability. Now you look at something like Node.js, right? And that entire ecosystem, like, you know, these are folks who, you know, their open source project comes with slick marketing with easy to, to use tutorials and YouTube channels, right? So the, the, the consumability of open source has evolved over time where it's shifted from being something that is very clearly a project, just a chunk of code that you can you know, use or not use, depending if you want to, to something that starts feeling much more like a product, whether that be Node or Ubuntu, right? The lines between the business and the project for Ubuntu is a very blurry one. And, uh, and so I think the, the evolution here ends up being the sort of the, the, the branding and product nature being separated from the code and so oftentimes you'll see an open source project get forked, which is the ultimate sort of expression of freedom. But when you fork the project, you don't necessarily fork the brand, right? And so the true sort of like, you know, a successor to the project is the one that gets to keep the name. And, um, and so, you know, MySQL versus MariaDB is a great example, right? There was a fork after, after Oracle uh, um, took ownership of MySQL. Now there's MariaDB, right? Like 
you know, this is this is, you know, the code is 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 again not the entire story here and not where all the value actually ends up being. And so like there's this dimension around support, but then there's also this dimension around brand and identity of the project that we're seeing evolving too. Um, there's an interesting aspect, I think, around you know, this idea of benevolent dictator for life, BDFL, which you'll hear if you're in the open source community. This idea that the person who started the project is the ultimate dictator, but don't worry, they're a nice dictator, <laughs> you know? And it's been fascinating to see the places where that succeeded and the places where that's failed. And so there's definitely a level of control there and sometimes it works. And in other cases, there's a uh, um, there's much, much more community-driven, community-oriented way of actually deciding how things get done within a project. Um, the BDFL model, when it fails, like you can always fork, right? I mean, that's that's the ultimate expression of freedom in this world. Do you think there's a difference between um, either the kinds of projects or the kinds of community values where a BDFL model would succeed versus where it very clearly is not? I think that when the open source project is closely associated with a commercial entity, then it gets confusing of what's good for the company and what's good for the project. And um, and I think in the mind of the BDFL, because they have so many business interests that are sort of so tied up in that project, it can be very, very difficult to tease those things apart. And I think, you know, anytime when you have a job and you're working with an open source environment, you, you're wearing multiple hats. You're thinking about what is good for this project long term, and then what is good for me or my company, and what are the, the needs that I'm coming and bringing here? I think um, when it's community-driven, oftentimes, you know, when I see this work, at least what we try to do in the Kubernetes community is wear your agenda on your sleeve. If people know what you're trying to do, why you're doing it, how you are looking to make money, then they understand okay, where are we actually competing? Where are we cooperating? The lines are clear, clearly drawn. And I think when the, 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 the BDFLs and business is sort of all concentrated in one person, there's no forcing function to create them to actually create the clean lines between project and product. And, uh, and I think that that can oftentimes eventually lead to, 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 to dissatisfaction and sort of burning your community. Um, I think, you know, looking at that and then looking at also this idea of relicensing, you know, there is an implied contract between a community and an open source project. Um, and there's what's written down and then there's sort of the history and what people bring to it and what they assume. And anytime when you change that contract unilaterally, um, you're going to you're going to end up with a with an upset user base. And so I think um, it's probably more likely and easier for that to happen with that sort of BDFL business combined role. So on the topic of, of governance, um, you are one of the founders of, of Kubernetes. How were you thinking about governance at the, at the beginning? Uh, we weren't. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I, I think we were somewhat naive and I think we got lucky. Um, the project, you know, um, 
It was successful early on, but not nearly to the level of sort of visibility and pressure that it has now. And we had a lot of relatively senior mature engineers who had a shared vision of what needed to get done both inside and outside of Google. And I think, you know, some of that is like I mentioned Tim earlier, he definitely brought the, the, the sort of the collaborative attitude here. And so, you know, just like when you're on a small engineering team getting started, everybody's in it together, rolling up their sleeves and the ideas are flowing and nobody's sweating the details just because there's so much work to get done and everybody is on the same page on where things need to go. Um, as things moved on, we definitely got to a point where it was clear that there was going to be contention, there were going to be disagreements, and not everybody was, was viewing the evolution of the project in the same way. And so we went through this whole process of slipping governance in after the fact, um, which was really weird because what happened is a bunch of us who had been you know, part of the project for a long time, we got together and sort of anointed ourselves as actually you know, being the ones who are going to decide on governance, knowing that if we came off too heavy handed, we were going to probably, you know, really upset our our uh, community and uh, and really make people upset and, and could really kill the thing that that was really getting started. And so we got together with some meetings, talked about how we wanted to structure things. Um, it felt very much like a constitutional convention. I mean, you read about sort of like how the U.S. Constitution was created. And that sort of that that fragileness of trying to actually come up with something that you want to have everybody to sign on to um, was a really interesting thing to, to happen. And so that's a place where we did change that implied contract with the community after the project was going. But we tried to do it in a very careful way. And we tried to do it with the consent of the community over time. Right. So the, there were some super interesting discussions as as that stuff progressed. As an aside, has there been any talk of Kubernetes, the musical? <laughs> There's a documentary that's coming out. Really? Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll um, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of us signed on to do it. And originally the, 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 the documentarians reached out to, to me and Craig and Brendan, the, the original founders of Kubernetes, saying, hey, we want to interview you for this thing. And I think, you know, all of our responses is like, oh, we're not the whole story, right? It's it's really a community that comes into it. And so it ended up turning into a big project and COVID happened. And I think uh, either December or January, they have a trailer out now, but the the, the documentary is going to come out then. And, and they ended up expanding scope and talking to all sorts of interesting folks on sort of how it happened. And uh, I'm really interested to see how it all turns out and make sure that, you know, how embarrassing it is to watch yourself on, <laughs> on camera and such. But um, but yeah, really excited to see that coming out. Cool. I so, can't wait. <laughs> so just seeing how we have, I think we have a um, getting uh, closer towards the end of the interview, but we still have some time left. I'm super curious. So thinking back on where things have been and where like the journey you've taken in open source where you see things now, what are your predictions for the next 20 years? I mean, 20 years is such a long time. I mean, I've been in industry for 20 years and like the internet didn't exist 20 years ago, um, or at least it did, but not in the form that we have it now for sure. Um, cell phones didn't exist for sure uh, in the way that we have them now. Um, 
I don't know. I think I, I think we're going to see more decoupling of ideas and we're going to see people teasing apart different things. I think open source, like I said, is really code and value are actually being separated here. And so I think to some degree, we're going to see we're going to see code start to fade to the background, continue to fade to the background, find more ways for people to collaborate. And I think there's going to be more and more ways for people to add value on top of that, more ways to um, to use that code in interesting ways. And I think like one example would be this GitHub Copilot, right? So this is essentially training machine learning on the corpus of all the open source that's in GitHub so that you can help developers write code by essentially drawing from the sort of combined gestalt that is the GitHub code base, right? That's a fascinating evolution of, of open source. And in doing so, a lot of times, and I think this is a problem with machine learning in general, is that you take something, you put it into this machine learning process, and out the other side comes something else. And the, the, the connection between input and output is no longer obvious. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I, like, I, I think I got to think that, that the future of open source is going to be maybe somewhat of a depersonalization, a further disconnect between the people writing the code and the way that it gets used with things like GitHub Copilot being a great example of that sort of that disconnection there around, you know, the, the, the code and the usage. I don't know, that's not a very satisfying answer. I'm not happy with that answer, but I'm trying to think 20 years is a long time, so it's hard to predict trends. It is a long time. There's a lot of um, unexpected things that can happen in two years, let alone, I think, in five to 10 years. Um, 20, I do believe, is asking. That's pretty much a full generation we're yeah, asking, exactly. right? Like when kids today are entering into the workplace, what is it going to look like for them versus what it looked like for us? And that's a big question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can tell you. What, what hopes do you have? Oh, sorry, Julia. I was actually going to ask the exact same question. <laughs> okay, sorry. I think I have a delay. <laughs> I, I think like any technology, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So I went to high school at this math and science academy uh, uh, in Illinois, the Illinois Math and Science Academy. And, and one of the sponsors that early on was Leon Letterman, who, you know, um, you know, was part of the, the atomic bond in the Manhattan Project. And so as part of this, there's this real sense of like, you know, technology and the impact of technology is somewhat unpredictable and can cut either way. Right. And I think we see this, the social impact of, of the technologies that we're building um, and the impact that we have on society is, is you know, that's that's a huge part of the conversation right now. Um, you know, whether we're talking about machine learning, how that gets misapplied, whether we're talking about social media. And there's a question in terms of open source's role in this, right? I think, you know, if you're writing open source, you don't get to control who and where and how people use it, right? So, like, you know, people are talking about putting Kubernetes on, you know, on, on military aircraft and, you know, and, and Navy ships. And like, I don't know how I feel about that, right? But the, the answer is I don't have a choice. Um, that's just part and parcel of this model. And so my hopes are that we find a way through where we can use this in responsible ways. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's by evolving it so that people can't use open source in irresponsible ways. I think there's there's definitely a moral hazard there, or if it's that as a community we actually find ways to to you know to to 
to continue to figure out what's acceptable and not acceptable. And, and you know, as a society, we, we police ourselves here. Um, but I think that's both danger and opportunity to make sure that we use all of this stuff for good. I know there are plenty of interesting con- and thoughtful conversations going on around those lines right now. Um, I'm not sure if you saw there was recently an open source project being used for for um, NFTs, yeah. where um, the creator didn't amend the license, but stated a strong preference in the in the readme, which was an interesting compromise between between the two. Yeah, I, I do have the first commit for Kubernetes, and I've, I've you know I could probably mint an NFT on that and make some money, but it ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Excellent. Well, do you have any parting thoughts for about open source or? I, I think, you know, I've gotten so much out of open source and, um, you know, both professionally success around it. I mean, we built a company and, and ended up selling it that that had a big basis in open source. Um, but I mean, more than anything else, I love I love the, the the community that we end up building. You get to work with people. They change jobs. You still work with them. It creates a level of longevity in this industry and sort of, you know, longitudinal relationships that I think are sometimes hard to keep in other ways. And so, again, it's like the value is not in the code. The value is, you know, the friendships we made along the way to some degree. And... Um, and I think, you know, I, that I think is just awesome. And I think it really speaks to, you know, when this stuff works well, it's just a positive sum uh, thing, right? Where everybody comes out a winner. And I just think we need more of that. And, you know, we need more positive sum situations in this world uh, versus always viewing it in terms of winners and losers. And so, yeah, that's that's my that's my takeaway from open source, the, the, the community, the people, and just more and more positive some situations we have to we have to we have to have more of that thinking awesome well thank you so much joe really appreciate you coming and talking with us today well thank Thank you you so much julie and amanda